You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you or under a seat in front of you. And we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands so that you're looking at it, you're seeing what God has said, you're, you're hearing it, you're taking it to heart. If you don't have a Bible permanently, that is our gift to you. And we would encourage you, read it every day. Uh, love the Word of God. We love the Word of God here at Oak Hill. And so uh, we're going to open it for a little while here now. First John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verse 11. If you don't know where 1 John is, it's a, a few books before Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. So uh, start at the end and go back a few pages. You should be able to find it pretty quickly. Um, as you're turning there, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about a, a person or group of people, preferably within Christ's church, within the church, a person or group of people that you find particularly difficult to love. I know that seems like a potentially dangerous place to start a sermon, right? But, but I want us to be intensely practical. We aren't going to beat around the bush here today. We're, we're going to go right at this, okay? Think about a person or group of people within Christ's church that you find particularly difficult to love and then I want you to take that a step further and think about why it is particularly difficult for you to love them. Maybe it's, it's someone with a, a personality who, who rubs you the wrong way. Maybe it's someone who's, who's hurt you or someone you love. Maybe it's a church leader and, and you just naturally have a hard time with anyone in any position of authority or influence. Maybe it's a group of people in a, in a certain age demographic. You are older or, 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 or younger than them, and, and it, it just isn't the way that you think that these relationships should go. If you're, if you're, if you're older than them, the, the younger generation just doesn't act like they used to act. If you're, if you're younger than them, you're, you're tired of be, you know, having all of the, the rules pushed on you or whatever it is. Maybe you have a hard time loving people who have more money than you or who have less money than you. Maybe you have certain racial biases that cause you to be suspicious of certain people. Who within Christ's church do you find particularly difficult to love and why? Now take that a step further. Uh, how has that lack of love caused you to respond to them in unloving ways? Bitterness? Complaints? Gossip? Jealousy? Withdrawing? Pulling back in relationships? The reasons and responses for a lack of love are as plentiful as the various ways that we can sin against one another, aren't they? And so often we just kind of excuse this away. It's, it's not hate, it's dislike. It's not gossip, it's venting. It's not hurtful words, it, it, it's just telling it like it is. It's being authentic. It's not my fault, it's them. The reasons and responses for a lack of love are as plentiful as the various ways that we can sin against one another. And that's why the primary command Jesus gives to his redeemed community is to love one another. If it was easy to do, Jesus wouldn't have to keep repeating the command. Hatred of others and self-focus are the, the primary forms of currency in the kingdom of darkness. And therefore, love is the primary currency in the kingdom of light. And the church is to be an outpost of that kingdom. We are citizens together in a kingdom. We are 
the expression of God's family that is called to embody his love. And embodiment, we are the embodiment of, of Christ's character and activity. We are members of his body. And so our first priority, the first thing we must learn as a redeemed community is to love one another. We're in a sermon series called One Another, and we're seeking to deepen our culture of care at Oak Hill by devoting ourselves to the one another practices of Scripture. We're seeking to deepen the culture of care at Oak Hill by devoting ourselves to the one another practices of Scripture. And, and if you're, by the way, if you're a guest here at Oak Hill and you're, and you're looking for a church, think about this, like, like what is the kind of church that I'm looking for? What, what, what am I joining into? What am I committing to if I'm committing to a local church? Uh, last week, we, we talked about who we are. Ephesians 4.25 says that we are members of, one of another. And that's because of the work that Christ has done in our lives. If you have been saved and redeemed through Christ, you have been fundamentally put into his body, and then you need to live out of that identity. And who we are, understanding our identity, always drives what we do. Who we are drives what we do. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at what we do by looking at some key one another commands. And, and I've pulled these from three categories that I've identified. Uh, the, these are not hard and fast categories. I don't claim that they're inspired in any way, uh, but, but the three categories would be uh, commitment commands, uh, counsel, or maybe you could say communication commands, and then practical care commands. How are we to care practically for one another? It's really just a way to get our hands around uh, 34 or so commands that, that we encounter in the New Testament that, that end with the words, one another. And, and when we think about what we do as a church, we have to start here. We have to start with our commitment. We commit. We commit. Members one of another commit to one another in love. Commitment is essential to love. And commitment is the essence of love. There's no enduring love relationship between two beings without commitment. Amen, married people? Yeah. And that's because the nature of biblical love is the idea of covenant. It's first a covenant between us and God, and then it's between us and other members of God's family. And so, so here's our big idea for today. It should be in your sermon notes if it's not up on the screen. Because, By the way, thank you for enduring patiently with the screens. We are actively working on the problem. Uh, and uh, David was working on that quite a bit this week and getting tech support involved, but we're not there yet. So uh, our big idea is this. Commit to act out of covenantal love toward your brothers and sisters in the church. Commit to act out of covenantal love toward your brothers and sisters in the church. That's the sermon in one sentence. Okay? Garrett Higby, who's the author of the Transforming Mutual Care study that we are all doing in our gospel communities, he, he calls the command to love one another the mother of all one another's. From this one command flow all of the rest because love is the key expression of what it means to be members one of another. Uh, love is our primary response to the reality of who we are as Christ's body, as his family, his people. And so your Bibles are open to 1 John chapter 3. And in 1 John chapter 3, he has a little bit to say about loving one another. We're getting an extensive treatment of this command. It's, it's not the only place that the command exists, but it is one of the richest explanations of the, what the command actually means. John is writing a letter. It actually, it's, it's less like a normal letter of his day and more like a written-down sermon. And it's meant to circulate uh, in the, a group of churches in and around the city of Ephesus. These churches, just to give you a sense of what we're diving into, these churches have experienced uh, some loss of some members recently. And it wasn't just like a, an amicable, okay, you know, we, we agree to disagree, we're just going to part ways. No, no, no. This was ugly. 
This was like church split kind of stuff. Because some of the former members were, in John's words, in love with the world instead of with Christ. They had bought into the world's philosophies and, and mindsets. They had, they had put a higher value on some higher knowledge than love. And they had left a, a wake of hurt behind them. And so John is writing this letter to, to encourage these churches to, to keep living in the light with one another. You, you might be tempted to distrust each other. You've got to keep on it. He, he's, he's calling them to keep believing Christ together. He's calling them to keep loving one another. And so chapter 3, verse 11, really starts the second major section of the body of John's message that's focused on the concept of love. Read with me in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. We're learning to commit to act out of covenantal love toward your brothers and sisters in the church. And before we get to, to some of the commitments that are required for covenantal love, I, I want us to look at the initial command itself and, and really seek to define what is this love that John is talking about. And the definition that I would like to use is this. It is covenantal commitment sealed by sacrifice covenantal commitment sealed by sacrifice now we're going to break that down here uh, but let's start with the greek word for love and let me show you where i'm getting this definition from uh, the word for love here is a form of the greek word agape many of us have have heard that there's a cafe up in strasburg named that right and it's a pretty general word for love. It, it can be used of God's love for us, our love for God, our love for one another, our love for the world. But the theological dictionary of the New Testament one, one of the, says that one of the key features of this love is that it makes distinctions. Love makes distinctions. It, it prefers one thing over another. Namely, it prefers the object of love over oneself. It acts sacrificially. In this type of love, it chooses to show favor to the object of love. It, it unites itself to one and not the other. And here in 1 John, it is used just like that. It's, it's, a, it's a verb, an action. We must love one another. Uh, to quote the Everwise DC Talk, for those of us who were teenagers in youth group in the 90s. Hey, tell me, haven't you heard? Love is a serious word. Hey, I think it's time you learned. I don't care what they say. I don't care what you heard. Love 
love, love is a verb. And, and in this case, love is specifically a present tense active verb. They didn't put that in their rap. I don't know why. But if you weren't paying attention in grammar class, that means that, that the expectation is that we would keep on loving one another. The, the command is that love must be always acted out in the present. That, that's one of the things that I'm trying to show with this word, commitments. This is not a love that is once and done as a display of kindness. Like, oh, I love you once. It can't be changing based on my emotions of the day or my response to certain things that go wrong. This is not a love that, that gives up for any of the reasons that I had mentioned before. This is a love that is committed and ongoing between members of Christ's body. We commit to continually choose to love one another. Notice the direction of that love. The, the commandment is that we love one another. So remember, this is a, a sermon letter that would have been read in a bunch of different churches. And I've said this before, that we could look around the room and, and they could see exactly who John meant by one another as the letter was being read. And so we could talk about loving our enemies. We could talk about loving those who persecute us. We could talk about loving those who are in the world. But the Bible gives special attention to the love between those who are members in Christ's church. This is an overflow of God's covenant with his people. We were made God's children through the, the covenant in Christ's blood, and, and we were therefore made brothers and sisters together in the same covenant. If we all got the same dad. We all are brothers and sisters, right? Love between members of the church must be a covenant commitment sealed by sacrifice. So we, we talked about this covenant at, at the communion table just a little bit, right? Jesus says that the cup represents the new covenant that is sealed by his blood. And when we talk about a covenant, we are talking about a, a binding relationship between two parties. Marriage is a covenant. Church membership is a covenant. In the Old and New Testaments, uh, a testament, by the way, is another word describing covenant, so you use that word all the time. Covenants were, were sealed or secured by a sacrifice. So God made a covenant with Abraham by sacrificing a, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a cow, and a pigeon. God's covenant with Israel was sealed by a, a sacrifice of a, a variety of animals. And, and the new covenant was sealed by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ's own flesh and blood. And that is the essence of this love between one another. It is not primarily an emotion, though, though emotions will eventually come with it. It is not primarily a state of being. Love is a covenantal commitment sealed by sacrifice. And in John, 1 John 3, verse 11, he says, uh, this commandment, this, this covenantal commitment is nothing new to you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've, you've heard this from the beginning, he says. In other words, when, when us apostles preached the gospel to you, we told you about all the things that, that Jesus commanded. And we, told you, we taught you how to obey them, and we specifically taught you this commandment that Jesus gave us. That this is following Jesus 101. Love one another. John is specifically referring back to the, the gospel account that he wrote. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. And, and after showing his disciples selfless love by washing their feet and, and then instituting the Lord's Supper, uh, he, he dismissed Judas, the betrayer. And, and th that would have been especially important to, to these churches who, who just had people leave their midst and, and really betray them and betray Christ, right? But then once Judas was gone from the scene... As a response to the new covenant, Jesus gave them a new command. Covenants come with commands. Just like the old covenant contained ten commandments as an expression of faithfulness to that covenant, so too the new covenant contained one commandment. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What do you think Jesus wants us to do? Say it. Love one another, right? Jesus' followers love one another like Jesus loved them with covenant commitment sealed by sacrifice. That's what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus emphasized that later in the same sermon. He, he said in John 15, 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. To follow Jesus is to embrace the way that he laid down his life for you. And therefore, you lay down your life for your friends. Specifically, he's talking about here members of his family. The brothers. The brothers and sisters. Love is a covenantal commitment. Sealed by sacrifice. It's sealed first by Christ's sacrifice. That's ultimate, right? But then it's also sealed by our own sacrifice as we imitate Christ. It's going to require sacrifices of us. And this is, this is a high calling, isn't it? We acknowledge this at the beginning of the sermon, that this is hard. And it's, it's harder in particular with some people than others. And I'd imagine that those people are different for each one of us. But Jesus says it is essential It is the primary fruit of His work in saving us. It is almost always listed first in any list of of Christian virtues that we might call the the fruit of the Spirit or, or, or some other virtue list. And that's because love is the virtue that encompasses all other virtues. If you get biblical love, you get the Christian life. And so what is necessary for this type of love? How do, we, how do we do this when love is hard? As we look at the rest of the passage, I want us to look at three commitments of covenantal love. This will go a little bit faster than, than the previous section here. But the first commitment is this. Commit to addressing your own heart. Commit to addressing your own heart. So John starts out this this teaching on on loving one another by by showing us what love is not. Verse 11 again. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John shows us what love is not. Love is not hate. Love is not murder. And you're like, great, John, thank you for that. Like, I learned that stuff in kindergarten, right? But I want, you to, I want to show you how John shows us the opposite of love and, and what he does with it, how he interacts with this. He, he takes us back to a, a very familiar story in the Bible for many of us, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Two brothers, but not unlike the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ and the church, right? And you might remember the story. Cain and Abel are are the sons of Adam and Eve. And this is the first story that we get after Adam and Eve introduce sin to the human race. And so the story goes that, that Cain and Abel both offer a sacrifice to God, and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and he rejects Cain's sacrifice. And, and Cain gets angry about that. And, and in Cain's anger, God warns him. God says, what reason do you have to be angry? Do what is right, and you'll be accepted. But be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin's desire is contrary to you, 
but you must rule over it. And so Cain does not heed God's warning, and he murders his brother one day while they're out in the field. Now, think back on what God said in Genesis chapter 3. He says, sin's desire is contrary to you. The Lord was, was personifying the, the sin that was in Cain's own heart. The, the sinful desires or, or lusts of his flesh that ruled him. This wasn't an attack from the outside. This was an attack from within. De- desire is a, a function of the heart. And Cain had a heart that wanted to be viewed as, at least as righteous as his brother. He had a heart that wanted God to accept him on his own terms. So if he lived today, he's he's the guy who wants to come to church and worship how he wants to worship and not have anybody challenge him along the way. He has strong preferences and little regard for the people that are around him. And when God didn't respond to Cain in the way that he wanted, he hated, he despised God's acceptance of his brother. He hated God and took it out on his brother. And the bond of family meant nothing to him in the face of selfish, sinful desire. So God took Cain to the root of his anger. He took him to his sinful desires. He took him to his heart. And notice that John does the same thing at the end of verse 12. Notice what question John asks. He says, why? Why did Cain murder Abel? The, the question why is a question that addresses the heart. It gets at our desires and motivations. Why did Cain murder his brother? Answer, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If you pull all this together, Cain did what he did because he wanted what he wanted. He despised his brother's righteousness because God would not affirm his own ways. He wanted God to accept him on his own terms. And so this is the way the world thinks, isn't it? I can minimize my own evil by hating and eliminating another person's righteousness. I can minimize my own evil by pushing someone else down or to the side. If I can just silence the voice of the righteous. If I can tear them down in the eyes of others. If I can show the futility of their righteousness. How their actions still lead to death. And so they're no better than me. We're all just sinners, right? If I can do that, then I can be vindicated. John gives us a little side comment then. He's like, we shouldn't be surprised when the world relates to us in that way. But know this, John says. Anyone who operates out of these hateful heart motivations in an ongoing way proves that he does not have eternal life abiding in him. Remember from last week, we are who we are because God made us that way. But who we are must contrast who we were, right? If God's done a work in you, you're going to look like a new creation increasingly. You're going to be putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And if you, as a pattern of life with no repentance, refuse to prefer your brother or sister over your own desires, you have death, not life, abiding in you. You are not connected to the life source. You do not truly know the one to whom, for whom to know is life eternal. And so let John's words ring clear. He's saying you have not been saved by the gracious work of Jesus Christ if you do not love one another. That's some serious stuff. If a lack of love toward another member of God's family is persistent, then it is evidence that eternal life is not abiding in you. 
And so we must, we must, we must learn to address our own heart issues that get in the way of love. We must learn to ask the question, why? That John asks of Cain. Why is a question that reveals the heart. So John reinforces what what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says that any type of sinful anger, even calling someone a fool, is the same as murder. If you hate someone in your heart, John says, you're, you're guilty of murder. And why is that true? Why is calling someone a fool the same as murder? Because they're rooted in the same heart. They both have the same answer to the question, why? The answer is, I I prefer my own desires over the image of God that is created in another human being. And in the case of another believer, you're preferring your own desires specifically over the image of God that is being restored through Christ in another human being. And to do that is to despise the work of Christ, to forgive that person and transform that person. And so let me ask, do you see why any lack of love must be dealt with in our hearts urgently? We have to get on this. Have you murdered anyone this week? Have you murdered anyone this week? I have. And I don't say that lightly. I say that so that I will turn from it. When I asked at the beginning of the sermon, who do you have a hard time loving in the church and why? Most of us probably answered that why question with something that exists in the other person. They annoy me. They did something to hurt me. They represent something that I don't like. But the Bible would consistently call us to look back at our own heart and say, why? What selfish desires am I expressing when I refuse to love someone? What motivations or demands are ruling me at a heart level? Do they annoy me because they disrupt my sense of comfort or control that I prefer above caring for them? Have I refused to forgive a past hurt and instead live in bitterness replaying their wrong over and over against me in my mind, maybe, maybe that'll get back at them somehow. Am I trying to prove myself or vindicate myself above the other person? The, the motivations and desires of our hearts can be many, and we must be slow to claim that we know the motivations of others and diligent to search out our own hearts through prayer and repentance if we are ever to persist in committed, covenantal, sacrificial love. We've got to learn to ask why of our own hearts first as we work through the challenges of loving others in the church. Work it out with a a trusted spiritual friend, perhaps in mutual ministry during gospel community if it's appropriate. Ask them to help you see blind spots. Don't use it as an opportunity to show why the other person is so bad and why you shouldn't love them. But sinful, selfish desire is crouching at the door for all of us. Heed the warning. We must rule over it. And we can do that in Christ. We must commit ourselves to addressing our own heart issues. And then once we do that, we are ready to make the second commitment of covenantal love. Commit to acting selflessly. Commit to acting selflessly. Look at verse 16 again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How did we know 
what love is? How, how do we know the, the, the type of love that God wants to flow between us? We, we know it by the love that he has shown to us in our Savior. This is exactly in line with Jesus' upper room sermon. We lay down our lives for the brothers. Notice he replaces that word friends with brothers. We lay down our lives for the brothers because Jesus laid down his life for us. And the call here is not merely to be selfless, but to act selflessly. John and Jesus are not calling us to think about loving one another. They're not asking us to, to, to simply think less of ourselves, though that is a start. They're not calling us to merely know the definition of loving one another. They're not calling us to talk about how important it is to love one another or to listen to a sermon about it. They're calling us to actually love one another. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Jesus did not merely say that he loved us. He laid down his life for us. Aren't you glad? Love not only is selfless, it acts selflessly. True love is fundamentally self-giving. We lay down our lives. Now, John applies this selflessness particularly to caring for material needs. If you withhold good from someone when it is within your power to give it, you are, you are proving that God's love does not abide in you. Our, our God is a, a generous God. The, the stuff that we have is ultimately the stuff of this world anyway. It doesn't last forever. And, and it comes to us as a gift of the sovereign God who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. What David said earlier that, that we trust, we give as an act of trust that God will provide for our needs. And so for us to hold on to that world's goods with a, a tight-fisted, selfish grip would be a fundamental misunderstanding of our God and proof that we don't really know Him. We'll talk more about that type of generosity and, and, and practical giving in two weeks when we talk about caring commands, right? But the rest of scriptures would describe ways that, that we must express selfless love for one another in, in other ways. We, we must communicate or, or counsel one another. We must speak the truth to one another or show honor to one another, those types of things. We're going to talk about that more next week. But out of love, we also must be self-giving in our commitment. So think about the, the following one another commands in, in connection to this command to one another. This list is in your notes on, on the back side of, or the second panel of the middle. Commitment commands that we're talking about here. Love one another. Be at peace with each other. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not cause one another to stumble. Accept or welcome one another. Agree with each other. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Be humble toward one another. Fellowship in the light with one another. These are commitment commands that, that require a radical amount of self-giving love. They require us to lay down our rights and our opinions and our preferences. They require us to, to overlook offenses and forbear weaknesses and, and to forgive individual sins against us and, and to endure when someone repeatedly wrongs us. They require us to be peacemakers by laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the church. And so let me ask you, what has love for others in the church cost you? What does it cost you? Better yet, because this is present active tense, what is love costing you? And what cost do you still need to pay 
in acting selflessly toward other members of the church. By the way, husbands and wives, your brothers and sisters in Christ first. So you could apply it there too. But maybe there's a a bitterness that you've been harboring that you need to let go. And then you need to act in kindness toward the person you were bitter toward. Maybe you've been jealous of someone with ministry opportunities that they've received and you haven't. And Maybe it's relationships that they get to have and you don't. And you need instead to pray for them and with them for those ministry opportunities that they would, that they would thrive in those relationships. Maybe there's a, a weakness that you see in someone else and instead of nitpicking their flaws and, and pointing it all out, you, you just need to go and encourage them. Just encourage them. Maybe you've looked down on someone and thought less of them because of the situation they're in. And, and instead of looking down, you need, to, you need to humble yourself and say, you know what, but for the grace of God, go I. And then you need to step in there with them. Maybe you've had a complaining spirit. You've been prone to grumble. You're hard to get along with. And sure, you don't try to stir up strife. You're not active about it, but everybody can see how dissatisfied you are with the people around you. You need to show a new way. Ask God for a new heart. And encourage the brothers and sisters around you. Build relationships. Sacrifice your own preferences. Maybe you've put yourself first and you've said, I'll I'll start loving them when they start loving me. How about that? Listen, that kind of attitude will kill a church. We start loving when Christ first loved us. And so if if any of that is you, for the sake of your own heart and for the sake of God's glory in his church, repent. Identify your heart motives. Turn from your selfish sin and turn to Christ. Turn to the one who died to free you from slavery to sin and who rose again so that you could have a new life of love in him. And then don't just talk about love. Don't just intellectually acknowledge that you need love. Actually love. A lack of self-giving, active love is evidence that the love of God does not abide in us. That we do not have saving faith or eternal life. But it also reveals this last truth. That we can't love without abiding in God. Here's the final commitment of covenantal love. If you don't get this one, you don't get any of it. Commit to abiding in God. Commit to abiding in God. If you aren't loving others in the church, you aren't abiding in God. And if you want to start loving others in the church, it's not going to happen by turning inward. You have to first start by abiding in God. Look at verse 19. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, And reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So listen, the Lord is both the judge of our hearts and the source of our love. We must abide in Him in order to love, and we are not abiding in Him if we do not love, which is the essence of keeping His commandments. This is both the warning and the remedy. Now I want to make sure that we understand what John means when he 
talks about abiding in God. When we talk about abiding, we're not just talking about like making sure that you have your daily devotions, that you read the Bible and pray every day. That's part of abiding, perhaps, but it's so much more than that. When we talk about abiding in God, we're talking about remaining in constant awareness of and connection to the power and presence of Jesus. Talking about remaining in constant awareness of and connection to the power and presence of Jesus. God abides with us and we must abide with him. So Jesus uses the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He is the source of life. And we receive our life from him. And the branches must remain in constant connection to the vine or they will not bear fruit. They will not love. They will not obey any of the commandments of God. They will not produce any of the fruit of the Spirit in any kind of enduring way. And so as we think about this metaphor of the vine and the branches, think about the, how the vine nourishes the branches that are needed for life. It, it passes nourishment through a, a sap of sort. And I would argue that the sap of the Christian life is the love of Christ. That's what Jesus means when he's saying, abide in my love. The love of Christ nourishes those who are in Christ. We love, what? Because He first loved us. We love with the love that He has given to us. And if we do not have love for one another, we need to go back to the sap. We need to, to return by faith and believe the Son and, and, and go back to the source of life. This is what I believe verse 19 is telling us. It's, it's a little confusing at first, but let me just break it down like this. We, it means that we have to take the command to love seriously. And so if we look into our hearts and we do not find love, well, you do have it on the screen. Okay, I'm going to break it down even further. Hey, that's nice. Okay. So, look at verse 19. It's there on the left, okay? It's really kind of a, a hard verse to read at first, but... By this, by what? By loving one another. We shall know that we are of the truth. What does that mean? It means we shall know that the truth resides in us through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And by loving one another, we will reassure our hearts. So the word for reassure, um, it's really not a great translation, honestly. It's not used that way in any other literature. It means to persuade or to convince. We're persuading, we're convincing our hearts before Him, that is God. For whenever our heart condemns us, in other words, whenever our heart is, is shown to lack the necessary love that is required by Christ's commandment, God is greater than our heart his his character and ways are better than our character and ways and he knows everything that is he is the ultimate judge of our heart and he is the necessary source of our love now if that was still hard to follow here's the summary if you look into your heart and you do find love we must rightly identify that love is a fruit of the Lord's work in us. And we need to then use that encouragement to persuade our hearts to continue to abide in His love because He is the only source of true love. And on the other hand, if we look into our heart and we do not find the type of love that we described in point two, we must rush back to the source and ask the Lord for the love that we need. That, that, that He would give us everything that we need to act out of love towards others. In the words of Robert Murray McChain, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, for every one look at your fruit, 
for every one time that you're paying attention to your heart. Take ten looks at Christ. If you're convicted in the sermon in any way, run to Christ who has loved you fully and loves you still and is the source of your love for one another. The Lord has an ever-replenishing spring of love that will not run dry. He has loved you when you and I were unlovable. He has overlooked the worst of offenses in us. And not just overlooked them, He has atoned for them. He has taken them upon Himself. The Father has poured out His wrath on the Son whom He loved as an undeserved, incredible, selfless act of love toward us. And this is the Lord to whom we go to find the type of love that we need to endure in a covenant relationship with one another as His church. We are His church. He has given us up, Himself up for us together. The church is His bride and we must love her as such and all her members, because we are one flesh with them and with Him. He has given us His Spirit to indwell us, both individually and corporately. And the first fruit of relying upon His Spirit is love. John says, He abides in us by His Spirit. And so we seek Him for the Spirit who addresses our hearts. And we commit ourselves to acting selflessly toward one another. And then we walk in that commitment by abiding. By remaining in constant awareness of and connection to His power and presence in our lives. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.